0: You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Continue our, our series of, on Advent. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Psalm 90, 72. And, um, as a reminder, Advent is a season of preparation, a time of preparation uh, of for the coming of Jesus. This is a time that directs our hearts, our minds to uh, the coming of Jesus in two ways. First, as we get ready to celebrate the birth and the incarnation of Jesus, the first coming of our Lord Jesus, um, we are getting prepared because the sovereign God, became human, and came to save us. So Advent prepares us for the celebration of Christmas as the first coming of our Lord Jesus. But it also prepares us as uh, we await, excitingly await, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time, uh, when our God will restore everything, and he will take us to our new home, and everything is going to be amazing, and um, evil will be no more. So that's what we're doing right now, and uh, I want to give you some context of Psalm 72. If you, you'll it will be on your screens. Uh, but Psalm 72 is a poem or a song that was written. Uh, for Solomon. So if you read, depending on what translation you have, uh, it sometimes says uh, that it was written by Solomon. But there's a debate about that, and the the position that I think is the most accurate is that it wasn't necessarily written uh, by Solomon, but rather to Solomon. Uh, And so people think, or some scholars believe, that this is David's prayer before uh, his son Solomon was crowned. And in fact, if you read what happened at the end of First Chronicles twenty-nine or in Second Samuel seven, when when it's the last days of David and and God God promises that his descendants are going to be in power or uh, reigning over Israel forever, um, this matches this ceremony. Uh, this book, uh, Psalms or this uh, Psalm Psalm seventy-two, is also the last one of the second book of Psalms. I don't know if you guys. No, but the book of Psalms is divided into five sections. And the first two sections are the most heavy, um, or the ones that have the most Psalms written by David. And so this is the, the end of uh, that section, ver, uh, se- book number two. And if you read the last verse of, of the Psalm 72 you will see that it actually says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So the closing psalm of the book number two is Psalm 72. And this is important because this section, book number two, which is 42 to 72, is one of the sections or the books that have the heaviest messianic emphasis. So they, they are psalms that talk a lot about Jesus, and they are psalms written by David. And this is really important because throughout this psalm, I'm going to make a tie between Solomon and how that promise or that prayer is fulfilled in Jesus. And the reason why I'm doing this is for two, well, many, but primarily because God, through God, uh, let me just say, it, uh, I'm, my, my brain is a little foggy today, I'm sorry, but through God speaking to David about his son Solomon, God gives David the promise that his kingship or his family or his lineage would be in power forever. So there is a tie between what God promises to David about his son Solomon and the Messiah, which is Jesus. And if you read 2 Samuel 7:12, you will see that God says through his prophet Nathan to David about Solomon. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He, God is talking about Solomon to David. Verse 13 says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. If you remember, David wanted to build a house or a temple for God, but never happened. And the one who actually made it true or or become a reality was Solomon. And this is the promise. So there is a specific promise about Solomon given to David. But in reality, it's a foreshadow of what was going to come through the Messiah, which is Jesus. And in fact, in uh, a few verses later, we are told more explicitly. In verse 16 of Second Samuel 7, we are told, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is God speaking to David. And then God tells David, your throne shall be established forever. So this is no longer talking about Solomon. Now this is talking about the future because Solomon died and all his other kings died. But this is fulfilled in Jesus. So this psalm we're about to read is possibly a poem that David is writing for or to his son Solomon, when he is about to be crowned. But this is also a psalm that is very prophetic and messianic because everything that is going to be prayed for, for Solomon, um, is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. So we're going to do this a little different. I'm going to be reading, and then I, we're going to be expounding on each section. So this is what we see the first part, and, and I divided it in three parts. The first part is what I call the charge for the king. And verse 1 says... Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So I want you to have this image of uh, an older king, which is David, uh, praying for a younger king or an upcoming king, which is Solomon. And he is asking God to give this new king justice and righteousness. So Solomon is the royal son. But in reality, it's also Jesus. The king is Solomon, but in reality, in its fulfillment, it's also Jesus. So David is asking God to provide justice and righteousness to this new upcoming king. The royal son and the king are both Solomon. David pray, prays poetically to for God to provide these two things for the king. But there are also, in a way, charges, because the king, Solomon, is listening to this. And there are uh, charges or duties for the king for what he is supposed to do for his people, which is to bring justice and righteousness to his people. And this is a really good description of what Jesus also came to bring us, justice and righteousness. And the rest of the psalm will, will give us some clues of what this means exactly for us but in this verse we see the duties or the charges for this new king we see that the royal son is coming to bring justice and righteousness to his people and solomon did not fulfill this perfectly but somebody did which is jesus the only son of the king of kings came to bring justice and righteousness not only to a specific people which is Israel, but now to the entire world. The Father, the God, sends Jesus to the world to be born as a baby, to become human and establish his kingdom of justice and righteousness, to bless his people. So let's see what the work of the son is. This is my second part. This is the longest part. So what is the work of this king? Let's read from verse 2 to verse 14. And it says, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion over from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. What a beautiful picture of what the royal son Jesus does for his people. Again, Solomon did not fulfill this perfectly, but we have a better Solomon, a better king, a better son of David who fulfills this perfectly. And if we take this, all, all of these verses and, and try to come with categories, I found three categories of what Jesus does for us, what kinds of blessings this new king brings to us. Number one, prosperity and flourishing of the people. Number two, victory and fear over their enemies. Number three, freedom or care for the poor. In so many ways, this is what we all need from our authorities. This is actually what we expect as people from our leaders, from our authorities, from our rulers, from presidents back then, from kings. Yet, The reality is that we don't see this done for the people. Most kings, rulers uh, throughout history have not done this. In fact, there's a few exceptions, but in fact most rulers, authorities, and kings have used their position to enrich themselves, to push their agendas, ideologies, and to make a name for themselves. And this is not only something that happens outside in this in society it's also something that sadly has happened in churches as well. This is what happens when we don't recognize what Jesus has done for us and then we can extend that to others. Yet our king Jesus is not like any human king or ruler or authority, he is different. He came to actually do the opposite of what most human kings and authorities do. He came to rule in a radical, different way. He came to rule with justice and righteousness. He came to fully and truly bless his people by bringing prosperity and flourishing, victory over their enemies, and care for the poor and needy. And this is the incredible, amazing part. He came to do it in a very different way. He came to do it by giving his own life for them. So David is praying for his son Solomon. And he provides a map of what a good king does for his people. And Jesus, the Messiah, does it for us. He came to rule by giving himself for others. He was the real servant leader. The rule and reign of our king Jesus didn't end with his death. It continues now after he resurrected from death. And he continues, because he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he continues to bless us, bring prosperity and victory and care for all of us. Jesus fulfilled this prophetic psalm during his time on earth with the people around him, but he also continues to fulfill it with now all of us outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, outside of Samaria, outside of the known world in the first century. Now the entire world can Get the benefits or reap the benefits of what King Jesus has done for us. And this has been happening for 2,000 years. So let me briefly talk about each one of these categories. Number one, he comes to bring prosperity and flourishing for his people. This continues to be true today during his ministry on earth. Jesus didn't enhance his own life. He didn't make himself rich. He did the opposite. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry, he freed the demon-possessed, and he was a friend of the marginalized and outcast. He cared for the basic needs of the people around him everywhere he went. He even transformed water into wine because of a party. And he continues to do this today. Jesus is a good king that not only cares of our spiritual needs or not only cares that we are morally right, he also cares for our physical needs. He cares for people today. He continues to listen to our prayers and provide for us. And through his church, his own body, he cares for the needy around us. Jesus still Wants his people to prosper and flourish. And Jesus still wants all people around us to prosper and flourish as well. Listen to this description. I love this description of what a good king should be. Verse 6 and 7 says, May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. That's what a true leader does. That's what our true king does. That's how it feels to have Jesus as your king. We are the grass. And how does it feel? Like right now, for the past two days, it's been raining, and our reaction is like, ugh, it's nasty weather. Ask the grass. The grass is like, this is awesome. Ask the trees. Ask the flowers. Everyone except for us is happy that it's raining. This is how it feels. And this brings flourishment. The righteous are seen as flowers or plants that just grow. And they are in peace. Because everyone else hides. And the rain just falls on you. And this is how it feels to have a good king that brings prosperity and flourishing to his people. And we are his representatives. As his church, his body, we are to look around and our society and our community should say about his church, about Jesus' body, wow, these people are a blessing to us. This is Jesus to us today. This should be the church to our community uh, uh, today. He's like rain to the grass, like showers to earth. And he makes us flourish and brings peace to us. This is beautiful because of uh, uh, our chaotic world and painful society needs. Right now, is this. And as we look forward to the le- celebration of, the, of Christmas, the birth of our king, remember that he already came and he's already established his kingdom. And it's a kingdom of peace and prosperity and flourishing to all of us. And as we prepare for his ha- second coming and we see to the future, we expect, joyfully expect, that this king will come and fully, perfectly give us prosperity and peace and flourishing forever in a new earth and a new world for us. He doesn't stop there. He not only provides prosperity and flourishing, he also provides victory over, the, over our enemies or the people's enemies. There is a clear language in this text about a king who crushes the oppressor, oppressor uh, who delivers the needy and executes dominion in all, in all the earth. He, we are even told that he makes his enemies, enemies lick the dust, meaning that he defeats them. And all other kingdoms bow down before him and pay tribute to him. And this is exactly what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the one that came, came to set the record straight. And how? He brought things in order. This reminds me briefly of this guy that comes in and makes everything right. And, and the only thing I can think of is um, when I was Carla's boyfriend, uh, she had a lot of friends in, 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 her in her church, and she grew up with them, and they actually had crushes on with each other when they were little and all that stuff. And then one day, the Mexican boyfriend that everybody knew about came, And he came to set the record straight. (laughs) And he came to say this nonsense of she's my little sister is over. And they didn't like it. But that's how it went. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It it did happen, but I'm just kidding. Um, But that's exactly what Jesus did. He came to set the record straight. Before Jesus came to earth, there was a party done by Satan by sin and death. They were doing whatever they wanted with humans. And the, we were sins, we were we were sinners, we were enslaved to them, we bowed down before them, we experienced their pain, but they also were enticing us to get away farther and farther from God. And Jesus came and he said, No more. This stops now. Jesus came to rescue us from our, this weird relationship we had with our masters and oppressors, Satan, sin, and death, because we hated them because they made us suffer and they messed our lives up, but they also were very enticing and we loved them and we liked them. I think it's called, uh, there's a syndrome that has a name for that, when you love your oppressor. And I feel like yeah, Stockholm, yeah. I feel like we all had that with sin and death and with Satan, because for some reason we still go back to them. But Jesus came and He defeated them. Death was rampant. We were enslaved, we were murdering each other, we were greedy, there was wars and all kinds of stuff. and that continues, but now there's a new king and a new kingdom that came to defeat this enemies. Jesus came to bring victory and fear over his enemies and ours. He came to establish his kingdom. He came to deliver us from their chains and to bring us back to God. But he didn't do it like the other kings did it. He came to do it in a different way. Especially in America, we have this idea of how conquering should look. We have a whole army. We make Movies out of this, heroes that come guns blazings with the latest technology and defeat anyone in their path. And that's how it's been done for years. Jesus didn't do that. He came as a little kid, as a baby poor, born in a poor region called Galilee. Born in a simple place, the simple parents. He lived a simple life. He was poor. He was a carpenter, a laborer, and he lived a simple life. But he came to defeat these enemies in a way that nobody expected, not even them. He came to do what we were not able to do on our own. He stood up to Satan, sin, and death, our enemies, our bullies. He stood up to them, and he defeated them through their own means. Jesus stood up to sin by living a perfect, sinless life in our place so that nobody can say that he fell for him, for for sin. He paid the price of our sins by dying on a cross in our place. He defeated Satan, he defeated sin, and he defeated death. All three at the same time in a final blow by resurrecting from the grave. And now through him we have victory. And those three fear him because he has come to establish a new kingdom. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. Purchased us. He canceled our debt to Satan. And he actually shamed them. He defeated our enemies. And like Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over th- them in him. And this is what's being described here in Psalm 72. Verses 4 and 5 says, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. This is what Jesus did for all of us. This is what the message of the gospel is. That Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. He defeated our enemies. And through his work, through the work of this good king, now we have salvation by grace, not by what we do, but what, by what he does. And this is also a beautiful reminder, as we get closer to Christmas, that this good king was born to bring life and victory for us. And that one day... Later, in the next age, we are going to fully experience the deliverance of sin and death and Satan. The last thing he does is that he cares for the poor and the needy. There is a clear emphasis in this text about God caring for the poor. And this is not an emphasis of this text only. It's it's an emphasis of the entire scripture. That God shows great care for the poor. That God loves the needy, hears them, and finds them precious. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are what's called the heart of the, of the passage. If you ever read the, the book of Psalms, typically because of its poetic uh, structure, the, f- the beginning, the middle, and the end are like the things that tell you what the psalm is about. But the one that stands the most is the heart of the passage, the, passage, the middle of it. And that's 12, 13, and 14. And this is what the middle of the passage says. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor. And him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. This king of justice, this king is not only concerned with hanging out with the rich and powerful. No, he came to spend time with the lowest of the low, the prostitute, the leper, the tax collector. He loved the orphan and the widow. He loves the poor and the needy. Let me just make a little parenthesis. When I talk about the poor and the needy in this uh, context, I, I'm using that word in two ways. The first one is in a way that includes all of us. We're all the poor and the needy. We, As humans, we are all the Poor and needy. We all uh, have lackings and uh, inefficiencies and shortcomings, and they might not be financially, but there could be in any other way. So we're all poor in other ways, emotionally, relationally, in our health, in many other ways. We're flawed, we're needy, we're broken, we're weak in so many ways. We just don't show it to others many times, but Jesus loves that poor, that everyone poor, that He loves us. He knows us. He knows our deepest secrets. Jesus knows us the exact way that we truly are, but he loves us still like that. He loves us deeply. He loves us with our needs, deficiencies, inefficiencies, and shortcomings. He loves us very much, even though he knows us fully. But there's a second way I use the term poor and needy. And I refer to people without resources, the people who don't have their basic needs met. The marginalized, the outcast, people, the Bible often often refers to them as orphans, widows, immigrants, sick, etc. And those are the ones that are obviously poor. They lack money, they lack resources, they lack health, or they lack their basic needs. But the problem with this second group is that they also experience the first part of the, of the issues that everyone else has. They, these people who don't have their basic needs met also deal with emotional, relational, and all other kinds of shortcomings. So they are worse. They are at a disadvantage. And biblically speaking, the king of justice has a special love for them. Not because he loves them more than others. Not because everyone else I- is worse or better than them but because everyone else despises and ignores them. This king doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. I love the ending of verse 14. They are precious. Their blood is the precious. Is their blood in his sight. When Jesus looks at a poor, needy person, an orphan, a widow, an immigrant, someone who does not have their basic needs met, He sees them, and he considers them precious. They look at the image of God in them. They see them as people who are worthy of respect and honor. He sees them as important. Pastor and Professor Robert Chao Romero says in a simple way that I really like, says the following, from a biblical standpoint, although God loves all people equally, he shows unique concern for immigrants, the poor, and all who are socially marginalized. One theologian calls this the Galilee principle. What human beings reject, God chooses as his very own. Robert Charles Romero uh, later gives an example, and he says, the way I look at it is because I have two, uh, two boys. He has two boys. And he says that one of them is predominantly or like significantly bigger than the other one. And when they get in fights, he immediately favors the younger one because he is the one that most likely will end up losing. He has more to lose. And I I relate to that. I have two boys, and they're far away. And every time Joel and Caleb are fighting, when I hear Caleb cry, I immediately ask, what did Joel do? Because he's the big one. He's the one that has the ability to hurt the other one in a way more significant manner. This is, I believe, what our king of justice does. He cares for the needy. He cares for the poor in a special way. Not because they're better or worse than anyone, but because they are at a disadvantage. Not because they're less sinners than the rest. No. They are equally sinners. They are equally needy of the gospel. But they have everything to lose. And God loves them. God loves. Jesus loves the least of them because he is our King of justice. This is this is our God. This is our amazing King who comes to bring his kingdom and his, his his kingdom over his people and bring prosperity and flourishing for all of us, victory over our enemies, and care for the poor and needy. And the Psalm ends with worship. What is the merit of this king? Let's read it. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the top of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and make people blossom in their cities like the grass on the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Everything our king of justice, our promise Jesus, Messiah, and Christ does deserves worship and honor the correct response to the work of the king the correct response to the gospel is that we should exalt him that we should uh, praise him that we should pray to him that we should bless his name forever that we should rejoice in his wondrous things that we should love him back because he loved us even though we're poor even though we're needy he came to die for us and that should make us respond in worship and love for him because he fills the earth with his glory. Because he still makes rainfall in our lands and provides for all of us. Because our king is good. Jesus is a good king. Jesus provides for us, he protects us. He loves us. He loves our families and our children and our parents and our friends. And he delivers us from sin. He has defeated our greatest enemies, he's given us eternal life. He loves us deeply. Even with all our flaws, this is our good king. And because of that and much more, we must respond to his works with praise and worship. There's one more thing we, we need to do in response to this king. If we truly serve him, we should do what he did for us too. We should do it for others. We're celebrating Stand Sunday, and if you read the the stats that Lauren gave us, there's a huge need around us. There's need everywhere. But I want you to think of something that I thought about while I was preparing this, and to be honest, this is something that has struck me the most about Western Christianity. When you talk about being a Christian in a Western country, we hear people say, or we hear things like, you can't be a true Christian and lie, cheat, kill, steal, get drunk. We truly believe that Christianity primarily has to do with living a good moral life. Right? When you talk to your friends, what do they say about Christianity? Well, I'm not a a prude or a, a goody two shoes—I don't know—I don't know the real names. Uh, excuse my Spanglish. Um, but yeah, like you have to be moral to be a Christian, right? And, and people th- think that's the truth. And in a way, it is—it is true in a way. We truly can't say that we're Christians and live a life of sin. But what people often relate Christianity to is righteous living. And yes, Jesus is a God of righteousness, and He is a King of righteousness. That's what this Psalm said righteousness is individual it's private it has to do with your own actions and character it has to do with individual morality and there is an element to christianity that covers that and it's true we should be moral people as a result of the gospel we don't earn heaven because of our morality nobody's moral enough to attain heaven so our works and our morality will never save us it is a fruit of the gospel of what jesus does inside of us so in a way it's true that you cannot be a true christian if you live a life of of constant sin none of us would believe that somebody's a christian if if that person constantly lies or steals or cheats or has killed people or is sexually immoral it, we would struggle to believe that that person is a true christian but we would struggle especially to believe if that person is so casual about it or if this is something normal for them. But here's the problem. We almost never hear people say, you can't be a Christian and ignore the poor. You can't be a Christian and not care about your neighbor. You can't be a Christian or worry or care about justice. In fact, we believe that if we're morally good, we're Christians, even though we might not be justice-related good. Because righteousness has to do with your individual private self character, but justice has to do with interpersonal and public relationships and actions. It implies how your actions impact others, It is relational, and it is social. It has to do with the people around you. And the reality is that in Western Christianity, we have normalized a Christianity that is far removed from people in need. Because we believe that because we read our Bibles, we go to church, we tithe, we don't lie, we don't cheat, I do my taxes, I'm a good citizen, then I can be a good Christian. But let me tell you something. This king is a king of righteousness and justice. We should struggle to say I am a Christian if I don't care about my neighbor. It is the exact same thing. It is also in the law. The law is not about love your God with all your heart, man, and strength, and and ends there. No. The law is that part plus love your neighbor as yourself. We can't pick and choose which one we do. We have to do both. We have to do righteous living, and we have to do justice living. We must emphasize the justice aspect of our Christian life. We must care for the poor. We must love the orphan. We must care for the widow, the immigrant, the needy, because that's all part of loving our neighbor fostering adopting especially with that amount of need should move us as christians should make us want to do something because inside of us there's a holy spirit there's a christ who loves them there's something inside of you that's like trying to make you go to them because he wants you to meet their needs Because he is inside of you, and he should move you. If you say you're a Christian, and you can see a needy person, and you don't care, you should rethink if you're a Christian. Because you are not a Christian because you love God. In fact, you cannot love God if you don't love your neighbor. But in our Western Christianity, we truly believe that it's all about morally living. And we justify ourselves because we're not doing bad things. But it doesn't end there. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus not only lived a perfect, sinless life, but he gave himself for others as well. And that's what we are supposed to do. So my plea to all of us as Christians, we should be moved to action we as Christians should be caring for the people around us we instead of inviting people to church should be showing our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers the love of Jesus to the point that they want to come to us let's jump in let's not only focus on living moral lives Let's focus on living lives that meet the needs of the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant. You don't have to walk too far from your home, I guarantee that, to find somebody who is in need. And let me just be clear, you cannot be a Christian if it's normal for you to lie, cheat, kill, and steal. But you cannot be a Christian either if it's normal for you to not care for the poor and the needy. They're both part of the law and they're both fruits of the gospel. Let me just make a last note. In the same way that our actions are and our moral living will not save us, also loving the poor and the needy will also not save us. We are not saved by our works. Our works are fruits of The gospel. Thanks for that, Marisol. I'll shut up. That's Satan right there. Let's be a church that not only verbally preaches the gospel, but we show, live out the gospel in front of people. Dear Jesus, we we thank you because you are a good, loving king of justice and righteousness and thank you because you have come to deliver us and to bring prosperity to our lives and, we, and Lord I pray that our response should be worship but worship not only in singing or only in uh, raising our hands or blessing your name but that we should also worship you in imitating you in being the salt and the light of this world and the people around us. Lord, I pray that as a church we would embrace this and that we would be a blessing to families who are in need, to individuals who are in need, and to everyone around us. In the name of Christ, I pray.